0: Unabashed. The most unpredictable. Becomes a headline. The most volatile. Outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities.
1: Welcome to Grant the Masha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. I'm your host, Melun Bashanov. Shaili Chopra was a well-known business journalist working for outlets such as NDTV Profit, and ET Now before she decided to leave primetime journalism and become an entrepreneur, launching a new digital media platform, She the People, dedicated to telling the untold stories of women in India and around the world. Shaley has a brand new book out called Sisterhood Economy, which distills some of the many lessons that she's learned over the years. The book is based on conversations with more than 500 women and some men across India and touches on questions ranging from love and marriage to livelihoods in the economy to business in Bollywood. Shaili joins me on the show today from Gurgaon. Shaili, congrats on the book and thanks for coming on the show.
0: Thanks very much. It's such a pleasure to be here on your podcast.
1: So I want to start by asking you about this major life-changing moment that you had several years ago. Uh, for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with you, at a relatively young age, you enjoyed a very successful career as a national television anchor. Your face was literally being beamed into millions of households across the country. But as you note in the opening pages of your new book, you sort of gave it all up because you wanted to tell stories that you couldn't very easily tell on air. These were the stories of women, their triumphs, their tribulations. Take us back, if you could, to that moment and tell us you know, what was going through your head.
0: I left with the three words, I am off. And those were the three words that literally helped me journey a brand new story for myself. Um, This was fairly early in my career uh, when I decided to shift gears from what is broadcast, national broadcast journalism into uh, digital, which was not national, was not visible, and was certainly a confused state for most people trying to navigate it. So to turn back time, I always wanted to be a journalist. I grew up watching de Set on the BBC covering war at the war zone ground zero um, and watching this through what was freshly minted cable channels coming into India at that point, just a couple of them really, and being able to see, uh, you know, the Gulf War, for example, and many others uh, in real time was um, was mind-boggling. Uh, And to think that women could do this itself was very, very um, stirring for somebody like me who wanted to be a journalist, had no idea how to be one because I was born to a military father. Anyhow, I landed up at um, assembly after assembly reading the news and I realized maybe that's a starting point at school (laughs) when you start reading the news there and finally get an opportunity to join a television channel and train for it. Uh, So as luck would have it, the BBC and... um, The Hindu, which is a very uh, solid uh, journalistic newspaper in India, together launched a school of journalism. I got trained there and I joined my first job at CNBC and shortly after that got picked by NDTV to help them set up their channels in the business world. All of this was new. Uh, Television in India was new. We're talking about early 2000. Um, And at that point, the idea of somebody becoming a television journalist was rather amusing. Uh, For most people, this wasn't a job. Um, And the fact that you would stick a mic in the faces of people and stand on the streets um, possibly was more, uh, you know, embarrassing than something to be proud of. Um, So that was the India, even in early 2000s, when it came to uh, journalism in general. But yes, uh, I think uh, to an extent, like many journalists around the world, I was extremely passionate Uh, And I think my employer saw this in me and I had many, many early opportunities, so much so that I was a national television anchor within six months of my training as a journalist uh, and passing out. So that became a big deal for me. Uh, Telling stories at the center of this was something that was very heartening because news does seem like something you do every day, but it's so new every day. We we are telling very different stories every single day, and the economy in India and you know the bustling nature of our country. There are so many layers to every story. There's a lot to report on, which also makes the hard of a journal, uh, you know, the work of a journalist much more harder. Uh, because how do you find those stories? So yes, at, at one point when I realized that I had done close to 14 years reporting on business and economy, I asked myself, where are the women? So I had done, I think, 267 interviews of which some 37 were uh, were women and the rest of them were men. This came with the nature of um, choices I had made. I had decided to do business and economy and most corner offices were run by men. You know, as I always say that uh, half the country that is employed in this, um, you know, in in this economy wears black suits and the rest is ignored because they don't. So I think this was one issue that was nagging me. I just didn't know at which point in my career I would get off that pedal and explore it. And I think digital in 2013 gave me the courage to step out and say, let's try how do people react to a little mobile phone. And uh, a short experiment basically told me my mobile phone is the new studio. And that's how She the People was born. Um, First, technically, it was possible now that I had the mobile phone. But it took me to the notion that I had left... Uh, after doing my final interview with Warren Buffett, to say it's time to spotlight women around India, and they don't have to be Warren Buffets of the world to be spotlight.
1: So, you know, you made this critical decision, you you gave away a lot that you worked very hard to earn to set up this new experiment, right? At that point, digital was just kind of entering our everyday vocabulary, um, tell us a little bit before we go any further about what she the people is. I think many of our listeners would have heard of it, although they may not fully understand uh, what it involves. You know, what is this platform, and, and what did you set out to do?
0: So, she the people is India's largest, perhaps Asia's largest platform focused on telling stories of women, of everyday women. As I say, these are real women, real stories, real successes, and real struggles. So we reflect on what they are doing. Why they're choosing to do what they are, and how can we help them in that journey? I wanted to steer away from the notion that when it comes to women, all they're interested in is vanity. And that's what we've been raised to believe: that if you're a woman, you need to think about your clothes, your makeup, your beauty, and perhaps diapers. But when will we look at women outside of baby-bearing and walking wombs? When will we look when will we look at them as Uh, People with ambitions, goals that go well beyond how they dress or how likable they are. Uh, And I think this conversation, as it sounds now, seemingly one that is happening more often, back then was a conversation that somebody had to really speak up very boldly to be heard. You know, I even say this to the extent that at the time we were born, nobody was listening to us. And it took a while before people started noticing that our conversation is a conversation of change that is helping women recognize how they can rewire their thinking. So one of the most common things that I get in my DMs on Instagram is really what sums up what She the People became. The content and community and opportunities that your platform creates, Shelley, makes me strong enough to think that I can change my world. And that, to me, has been the biggest compliment in any language that uh, the platform has received. Uh, So I think that's really where um, we started. uh, And noticing how storytelling, a very often used word with wide repercussions, uh, really means that when you can empower somebody's thinking through the idea of what a story has been, uh, of a person and how they change their life, that can trigger change amongst us all. I say this and I get goosebumps because I know that it's happened to me and it's happening to someone else. So at a time when nobody was talking digital, uh, I was sort of entering this world um, very, very uh, confident that there there would be something that would give in. And the reason was that I had spent 2008 to 2013, which is about five years, Uh, being with one of India's largest channels under Times of India banner, understanding what was happening in places like Davos, which is somewhat jaded now, if not quite. But back then, it was really the place where people were chattering away on Twitter, DMing each other in different spaces and understanding what was happening and what was Facebook and so on and so forth. And what that spoke to me was not how big these platforms may become, but how many people were willing to experiment there and actually create a community with like-minded goals? And that's how when she the people looked at digital, we realized there are two major imp- uh, you know, impediments for women. One is to be in a place which it is at least is seemingly agnostic. Digital offered that. Second is that they didn't have to leave their home to get to us. And that was very big. You know, if she could sit on a mobile phone and reach out to us and be part of a conversation rather than have to explain why she was dressing up to leave the house or do anything, you know, be answerable to a husband or father or brother or have to have an escort to take them somewhere because of safety issues. It just seems so, so natural for them that if this was the new power for them to accept or a community to become a part of, they were on.
1: So uh, let me ask you about this because, you know, you've just painted a picture of, you know, a woman who may be at home who may be looking to uh, tap into this community and the mobile phone allows her to do that. As you know, and you talk about at quite some length in the book, there is this long running debate. Uh, about female labor force participation, right? And we know that there are the headline numbers which show that female workforce participation in India is not just low, but it is low and declining further. But you do point out in the book that, and I want to, this is a quote, almost every woman is a working woman, only some are salaried, right? Um, So does that suggest that the metrics that we commonly use to capture quote unquote working women is, are like completely out of whack with what the realities of ordinary Indian women's lives would suggest?
0: I think based on the quote that you have just mentioned, all women are working women, only few are salaried. This is true across the world. Why just in India? You think that a lot of people who are actually working um, in different ways, many of them who are earning What would be defined petty cash in some country would be defined the cash economy in another. All of them are eventually only counted in one small portion when they land up purchasing products, enter the economy through the, you know, MRP or max retail price when they make a purchase. In India, this is especially true because a large number of women are not in what is termed as the organized workforce. And the term organized essentially means that you're part of a structural organization which is offering you what are social benefits as a part of the corporation's existence, right? This perhaps is a term commonly used across the world. It's called provident fund or some amount of saving where the government as well as your company invest in employee well-being as a part of the salary structure. But all these technicalities aside, simply put, Women in India are often outside of the organized labor market because we define labor in a very specific way. So that's why our figures, which by the way, are not improving. So I'm not justifying this decline from 35% female labor force down to 24% till about 2019. And I hear even lower now, right? We're probably in our early, early 20s. 20, less than 20, I mean, just slightly more than 20% of the Indian female workforce is working. That's terrible, right? I think the number in the United States at my last check was close to 49.5%, right? I feel that we are accepting that one of the most vibrant, large economies of the world is functioning at subpar because half its population is nearly out of the workforce, I think that's massively problematic. Now, let me take you to the backstory of what I've tried to capture in the book, Sisterhood Economy. I've talked about people who we don't count and therefore we don't think that the work they do is measurable, right? This is not even at the moment, let's say the work done by a woman at home. I'm talking about a masseur or um, a lady who works in somebody's house as a, a, you know, a housekeeper or a person who works as a nanny, all of these people are earning in cash. And they are not using that cash to put in the accounts, which is, for example, a bank account. When they don't put this money in the bank account, they're essentially using it for their day-to-day products. At no point, they are registering how much money they're earning into any government system nor are they willing to organize themselves to, let's say, the banking sector, even though India has created many incentives for women and men to open accounts at a very basic level. So we land up with people who do jobs in beauty parlors, jobs in homes, or at-home salon services, as people who don't belong to the entire space of, um, you know, Being counted. In many languages uh, now in the startup world, it's called micro entrepreneurship. Now, these are spaces that are very critical for two reasons for economic calculation of what women can contribute. But more importantly, these jobs bring women agency. And we have totally wiped off the idea that an agency is a contribution, I mean, an agency for a woman is an economic factor for any story to happen. Take the example why I say agency. One of the ladies who works as a beauty parlor, at-home beauty parlor service offerer, told me how she today has more respect at home because she brings nearly half the salary or two-thirds the salary that her husband earns as a guard in a proper, you know, retail store. Her husband, as a result, has recognized that she's contributing the house, so what does he not do, right? And this is the painful part. He thinks perhaps, therefore, he shouldn't hit her. Perhaps, therefore, he should educate her their children because they have two incomes. Perhaps they should eat better. Perhaps his wife should not sacrifice her meal in favor of her husband's. I mean, are you seeing the change that it brings there? In some cases, little money earned by women in micro entrepreneurship is the agency to say no hmm. to use at home
1: so this is actually a very nice segue to something you talk about in the book uh, which is the importance of role models right and and one of the things you point out is that you know one central reason why women don't choose high earning jobs is not because they don't have the skills or education uh, education required It's that there aren't enough female role models in in these sectors, right? And, you know, you've now been on this journey of She the People for several years. In that span of time, how quickly are things changing?
0: So as on today, we have interviewed 500,000 women who are not CEOs or seen on the front pages of magazines. Each story is a story of some success, a lot of struggle, but every one of them is supremely inspiring. Now, why did this matter? This mattered because we had to normalize the notion that women need to celebrate smaller wins. I use the term smaller in double quotes because our expectations of what a win is, is the day you land like the biggest job in, you know, the corner office, or you become a minister. And I think that's actually one of the big disservices that we are doing to the idea of success. We are raising the bar so high that a lot of people shy away from even trying for it, right? So first was, normalize what should be called success. Me, another girl next door, somebody who's perhaps able to, you know, talk to her daughter and get her into a job, somebody who can work from home, somebody who can feel confident that working at home Is her power any of these? You know, one of the reasons why I brought up what you are talking about, about the book, is why women give up high-paying jobs. One is because we are conditioned to not believe that the jobs we do are high-paying or deserve to be high-paying, right? We have already decided that the job of a coder is far more important, let's say, than the job of a graphic designer right uh things are slowly changing but very little uh we have already made this notion around the world techies are more valuable to the company than let's say somebody who's joining at a uh, at a marketing level or or perhaps at a communication level right so there are and, and this the reason i say this is because traditionally we've seen a lot of women in marketing communication and we've seen bro culture, of course, in the techie world. So I'm giving examples of industries where this is pretty stark. Or for example, more CEOs are male and chief HR officers are female, right? So we have already ascertained in our world through different ways in the past, that there are certain jobs that are more high paying. And as it turns out, they happen to belong to men. But it takes me to a a rather uh, social element of what happens in Uh, many parts of the world, and I'm guessing this is true for the developed economy as well. Women are shy to take up high-paying jobs. If they end up earning more than their husband, then they'll be in trouble. They don't want a situation where they'll end up with jobs that pay much better than their husband or even at par because that's not good for domestic peace. Right? That's one part of it. The other part of it is our parents raise us to believe that we have to eventually adjust and compromise with our partners. And large part of this compromise also comes in uh, with the statement when parents say that you're overqualified to get married. That essentially means that either you have studied way too much or you are capable enough to get much more than your husband, but we would like you to stay at base because life and family life is more important than careers and ambition. Which I think is intrinsically linked to the idea of economy.
1: Hey, Granthamasha listeners, thanks for listening to the podcast. Putting this show together each week is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of work to put out a great show every week. If you'd like to support the work we do at Granthamasha, please visit ceiporg donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcasting platform, so you'll be the first to know when a new episode rolls out. So, you know, you talked about uh, the role of marriage here, right? And this is something actually on the show we have covered recently. uh, I interviewed the author Mansi Choksi has a fabulous new book called The Newlyweds, which is about sort of taboo marriages all across India. You know, one of the things that you touch upon in the book is that many young people in India today are opting for arranged marriages rather than love marriages because young people, including many young women simply don't have the time to invest in finding a partner when they're focused on their career. So it's, it's, it's sort of paradoxical in a sense, right? Because at a time you might expect to see more, quote unquote, love marriages. Are we perhaps seeing the opposite?
0: So, you know, this chapter, the Indian marriage fish market is one of my favorite chapters because it's full of so many anecdotes, none of which throw a clear trend. The only trend that we've had in India for decades and decades is that we have the lowest divorce rate and the highest arranged marriage rate, right? And this has nothing to do with love. It has only to do with the fact that we are trained to keep up with our marriages because after all... Broken marriages are just not accepted in India. They are stigmatized. They are considered a a problematic issue. And most of the brunt of such situations are borne by women. That's just to put the facts on the table. But now, what all is changing on the ground? One is the fact that many women just don't want to spend time investing in relationships because they don't have the time. They're just too busy building careers, right? There are the other kinds who are like, I actually just don't want to get married because I just don't know what all I'll have to give up, right? It's a small number, but it started as a conversation. Earning women are saying, why is marriage important in the first place? Why don't we rethink the marriage uh, piece as an institution? Why is this an institution? Why am I not celebrated for finishing my master's and getting a job or landing up my PhD? Why is marriage the biggest celebration? Biggest celebration. The United States perhaps is the biggest recipient of NRI weddings, as is India in terms of the percentage of money parents spend on uh, you know marriages. I think they spend more money on weddings than they do in their entire life educating their daughter. That might actually be several times over the amount of money spent. So we are seeing that the marriage situation here is seeing a small sliver of shift. But it is driven by the fact that parents have usually said, if you get married to a person of your choice, everything that happens after that is your is on you. <laughs> you. Repercussions of a bad marriage, anything that you disagree with, we didn't do it, right? There's a very moving story in this particular piece, which links to what happens in a country like ours, the realities. So Indian Institute of Technology is the top-notch engineering institute in this country. A woman died by suicide uh, during her PhD a few years ago. Her parents came out of the press with tears in their eyes. And instead of perhaps questioning that she had had a death due to dowry being demanded by her in-laws, they were blaming themselves for not having invested enough money and saved enough money for her dowry and regretted spending that money in helping her achieve a PhD at the Indian Institute of Technology. That story is such a telling piece of what happens in India. And I have mentioned this, that even at a time, you know, my parents were very progressive. But I have seen my mother collect things for my trousseau before I could say the alphabet T. This is how conditioned our families are. And it's not going away. They just come wrapped in different ways. These are gifts for you to be comfortable. This is something else. This is something else. This is just a way to celebrate you. It's actually a form of dowry.
1: (laughs) So I, I want to bring politics into the equation, if I could, for a second. Um, one of the things you talk about and something that that I've witnessed as well, and lots of people have written about this, is that we've seen an increasing trend in the past decade or so of politicians and political parties increasingly catering to the quote-unquote female vote, right? Some people have said, look, this is a really good thing because after all, 50% of the population, aka uh, India's women, are finally being heard, others take a more skeptical view saying this is basically perpetuating tokenism stereotypes about what women want from from politics and so on and so forth uh, you know as somebody who who is steeped in 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 what's happening with india's women you know how encouraged are you by the seemingly newfound attention being paid to women as voters and kind of political uh, individuals
0: so you know in the in the book i say this that India could do a lot better if only it treated its women much better. How difficult can that be, right? Now, the reason I bring this whole political angle to this statement is because in a democracy, your biggest tool is your vote. And if Indian women are able to come out in bigger numbers and get noticed for what they are vote, who they're voting for and how they're voting, I think that's a very, very positive step. I am more than pleased that in the last four years, maybe just a little more than that, Indian women voters have got the attention of both the media, but also the politicians. Now, these are important at many levels. One is the fact that when you do educate a woman, you're educating a village, right? That theory that we've always had in India is absolutely true. If you try and convince a woman of a certain kind of policies that will benefit her and her family, she's likely to take a larger view of situations that she expects to be in when a certain government comes to power versus, let's say, the kind of conversations one tends to see peddled at men as voters. Right? what men and women want from governments are very different. This may not be true, for example, what men and women want from money. They want same returns. But when it comes to what do they want from the government, their expectations are different. They want... You know, cleanliness, food on the table, higher nutrition, better uh, hospital services as a pregnant. You know, during pregnancy, nutrition services, free education for their sons and daughters, better bathrooms. I've never heard men have these conversations. Right? Men will talk about farmland, uh, agricultural practices, how much discount on the um, you know, maximum retail or minimum support price, which is a practice in India to assure basic income to farmers. They'll talk about things like that.
1: You know, uh, I don't think we could complete this conversation without talking about a a taboo subject within a taboo subject, which is the role of the mother-in-law, right? The sas bahu. I mean, this is uh, in every society a difficult relationship, perhaps none more so than, than in India. We have this stereotype ingrained in our heads of the mother-in-law as the so-called monster-in-law, right? I think, as you put it in the book, who sort of dominates the daughter-in-law's life, making it a living hell. You looked into a lot of actual empirical research on this. You know how true to life are these stereotypes that we have in our head?
0: So interesting that we, are seg- you know, the segue comes from politics to another form of politics, politics <laughs> right. At home, right? And this is something that's extremely alive. But I do make a very big pitch in this book that while we recognize the politics at home between mother-in-law and daughter-in-law, and it's universal, um, we are forgetting how important this relationship is because how easily we belittle it. And the reason I say that, in most cultures, women spend much more time with their mother-in-law than they do with their mothers. In India, girls are raised to be given away or, as somebody said, married off. Right. You're not married. You're married off, which means you're not going to come back to this house to your parents. Right. And they will not welcome you back. So therefore, you are going to spend that time with your mother-in-law. And if you're going to do that, bunch of things come out through the data in this book, uh, which has been done, you know, a research led by a World Bank economist, that you do need to recognize how mother-in-laws influence decisions on health. When should a woman have a baby? How many babies should she have? Whether or not she should be concerned about the sex of her child. How often does she go for nutritional checks? What is the respect she deserves at home? Should she be forced to cover her head in a ghungat? Or can she have her head straightened up like anybody else with her dupatta down and looking, you know, just into anybody's eye while talking? We have these cultural notions about how a daughter-in-law has to come packaged in some sort of a wrapper and stay like that and forget her entire identity, right? In our cultures, in our, some of our subcultures, we don't just change the second name of a woman. We ask her to change her first name as well. So literally wiping off her entire identity before she's married, right? These are very problematic issues. And therefore, the pitch I make in this book is that we have always glorified the role of a mother, And we have denounced the role of a mother-in-law. I think we need to look inwards. Are mothers raising their daughters wrong? And are mother-in-laws getting conditioned to raise their daughter-in-laws or be in relationship with their daughter-in-laws because of what we watch on pop culture? Could we change this? If a mother does not raise her daughter to believe that her, you know, they they say this in India, that once you go to your mother-in-law's house, she will set you straight. Right, 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 And you say right. these with gestures, you know, gesticulating. Like just wait, you arrive at your mother-in-law's house and she will straighten you up. And so do our pop culture uh, shows. So we have propagated this so poorly uh, that we are forgetting that if a woman today, and there are stories of such women in the book, a woman today finds her biggest support system in a supportive mother-in-law. One woman went to the extent of telling me, I think that women should not look at the guy and get married. You should always first figure out your relationship with your mother-in-law. Because she'll be the game changer in your pursuing a career, having a baby or not, getting respect from her son. All of that comes from there. And that is a alive truth. We need to fix that. To the point to mothers, right? Mothers not... I mean, Indian women or women anywhere are not just half the population. They raise the other half. We need to fix how we raise our women. And raise our sons.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, just to emphasize the final point you mentioned about the sons. I mean, I think that's also a point you make in the book. Is like, you know, if if and when mothers-in-law are turning into monsters-in-law, right? The son also has to play a role, and we often let the son sort of get off the hook, right, scot-free, and 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 blame the mother. I, I want to ask you um, before we run out of time about technology. Um, because there is a very interesting part of the book where you talk about the transformative power tech is having, um, both in terms of changing stereotypes, you know, giving women new opportunities, whether it's, you know, in television, and business, their daily lives. Um, you also introduced this term, which I'd never heard before, femtech. So I've heard of fintech, but, you know, tell us about what femtech is.
0: So femtech is basically female technology focused on health. And this uh, is something that I myself have started working on, and I think I mentioned that in the book as well, that women having agency over their health, uh, particularly on gynecological and sexual wellness, Um, we in India are far from wellness. We're not even doing preventive tests right now. And the idea of femtech is to focus on female health solutions as separate from the idea of generic health. And this ties into what I started out saying as to why I started She the People. We don't look at women for being individuals. We see them as baby bearers. As a result, Indian women go to the doctor for the first time once they're pregnant. Just imagine, they don't go to a doctor before that for nearly like an average age, even if the lower uh, band of the age, we're looking at women getting married at 20 and almost being pregnant at 21, right? Women need to go to the doctor perhaps at the start of their period, and continue to do that throughout the hormonal cycle at the very least, because female hormones are deeply connected to physical health, internal health, and mental health. All of these are linked. So the idea of femtech actually looks at approaching health with a gendered lens. <laughs>
1: You know, Shaley, I want to sort of ask you about what comes next, right? You've been I- I embarking on this journey of She the People now, I think it's seven years now going on eight. Um, you you decided to make this big break with your broadcast journalism career to pursue a different form of journalism and entrepreneurship. Um, how are you thinking about your next chapter?
0: So I think for me, the next chapter came from within She the People uh, because we talked to our 4 million strong community, as well as our 20 million strong uh, viewership, uh, very regularly. And that is actually the cornerstone of our success. We listen to them, right? Uh, And they just simply said, one of the things that we are struggling with is how to get health solutions that are discreet, judgment-free, and targeted to our needs, and that's how the idea of GuideTree was born. G-Y-T-R-E-E dot com. Uh, this is putting female wellness right at the top. And it curates the entire programs that we offer based on symptoms. I mean, all the women and men listening to this podcast will notice how when women are not feeling well, they don't come up with a specific answer to, you know, I am having a specific disease or something, right? They say, oh, you know, I don't know why I get the sinking feeling. I don't know, I'm getting hot flashes. I don't know what's wrong with me, right? Because they're thinking symptoms. They're thinking about how they feel. And we really don't address the how they feel part, which has medical repercussions. So we're thinking like women think and building the entire femtech platform based on that very idea. That if we start talking to women in the language that they're feeling, they will start noticing that this actually has a deeper connection to a specific problem, whether it's polycyst ovarian syndrome linked to facial hair, whether it's just mood swings linked to abdominal pain or any of this. One in four women in India land up at the doctors at the fourth stage of endometriosis when their pain is unbearable. And this is because we are just fed that if you're a woman... Your pain should be to the extent that you're almost dying before you should get up and act on it. Because after all, sacrificing yourself is what you're trained to do. We need to change that. We've we've fed all of our, um, you know, all across the world. Beauty is important to women, right? It's been like good to do all this time. But I think finally, I feel the next big revolution will come on noticing how health is a must do and beauty is a maybe do. And that will come as women start talking about normalizing their bodies, wanting agency over it, you know, as we are seeing the protests around the world today, uh, whether it's the abortion rights in many parts of the world, or just simple fundamental rights.
1: I mean, even what's happening in in Iran today, right, I think is a good example.
0: Having the choice to have the choice is the cornerstone of feminism. And in, you know, women across the world are recognizing this. Uh, Whoever said this, it's a viral post that There is no difference between those women who are fighting the right to not wear the hijab and those who are fighting to wear the hijab. We have to recognize that women should be able to say no and yes to what they want. And that's where it starts and ends.
1: My guest on the show this week is award-winning author and entrepreneur, Shaili Chopra. She has a new book out called Sisterhood Economy of, by, for women. Shaili, congrats on the book. Congrats on seven years of She the People and thanks for taking the time.
0: Thanks very much, Melan. Wonderful to be here.
1: Grant Tamasha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review to help others find the show. Tim Martin is our audio engineer and Cliff Jayapranada is our executive producer. Production assistance comes from Nithya Love. Thanks for listening and see you next week.